the Anesthesia Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this very special Twitter broadcast. Uh, I'm Tanya Selak. I'm an anaesthetist coming to you from Wollongong in Australia, and it's my pleasure to be chairing this panel. Uh, we're talking about a brand new, very exciting paper to have just been released from the journal. Uh, it's an analysis of data around 150,000 patients who had tonsillectomy in England over a five-year period. And it specifically looks at whether these procedures should or can be done safely as day surgery procedures. So on the panel tonight, I'm really excited that we have this very uh, diverse, very smart group of people. So uh, first up, we have Ruth uh, Tyrrell. She's the National Delivery Director for the Getting It Risk getting it right first time. Oh, the irony, I didn't get that right first time, did I? Uh, welcome, Ruth. So pleased to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. And then I've got Keith Gray, who's the lead author of the paper, who's a senior research associate with getting it right first time. Hi, Keith. Hi. 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 I've got Michael Swart, who, um, who is an anaesthetist uh, and also part of the program and an author of the paper. Hello, Michael. Hi. Hi. Uh, and I've got Anakin Navaratnam. He's an ENT registrar and author on the paper and also part of the program. Hi, Anakin. Hi, pleasure to be here. Hi. Uh, so what we thought we'd start with is Keith has prepared a presentation to take us through the main salient points of the paper. So, Keith, if you're comfortable, you're happy to screen share and take us through the outline of the paper. Yeah, I'll just do that now. Okay, so our paper was on the safety of day case paediatric tonsillectomy in England. Um, so all the authors are associated with uh, the Getting It Right First Time Program, um, which is funded by the Department of Health and Social Care in England and has a remit to try and identify identify and minimize unwanted variation in clinical practice that negatively impacts on patient outcomes or health service efficiency in England. Um, and within the field of ENT surgery, we published the national report and it identified huge variations, um, evidence of huge variations in terms of rates of day case surgery for paediatric tonsillectomy in England, some trusts doing extremely high levels uh, of day case uh, surgery and some doing very low levels and this surgery appeared unwanted and also as well as impacting on service efficiency um, which as we recover from COVID service efficiency is going to be incredibly important in terms of clearing the backlog of elective surgery it also has potential implications for the patients as well so longer stay in hospital greater risk of hospital acquired infection and also most patients are much more comfortable recovering from surgery uh, in the comfort of their own homes rather than in hospital. But one of the key barriers we identified to increasing rates of DAK surgery, if this was appropriate, was the concerns over safety. There were other concerns as well, but safety was one of the big ones. So trusts were unsure whether DAK surgery was safe for, for large numbers of patients. So our aim was to investigate this. Um, so the data source we used was the hospital episode statistics database, which is an administrative database, and it covers all um, hospital activity in England. Um, so it's pretty comprehensive. Um, and we included Dickey's tonsillectomies for a five-year period from 2014 to 2019. Um, and this was as far as we could go because if we got one year follow-up of these patients to see what their outcomes were, um, this brought us right up to, <laughs> to the start of the COVID pandemic when everything changed a little bit. 
Um, we excluded some sorts of patients, so patients uh, aged under two years, those with cancer, congenital conditions, birth trauma, heart or circulatory disorders, uh, mucopolysaccharidosis, uh, hemoglobinopathy, uh, and neurological disorders other than sleep apnea, and obviously repeat tonsillectomies as well. Um, and these were patients that wouldn't really necessarily be suitable for dakey surgery right from the start due to the, the complex nature of the presentation. And we categorized trusts into specialist and non-specialist trusts. And there was two real reasons for this. Um, firstly, that specialist trusts tend to have a, a more complex case mix. So they are likely to have lower case rates of dakeys just due to the complexity of the case mix. But also they're seeing more patients from out of area. So more patients traveling longer distances for surgery, which might preclude um, dakey surgery. Um, so results, so we, over this five-year period, we extracted almost 150,000, just short of 150,000 uh, children between the ages of two and 18 um, across 133 hospital trusts in England. Um, interestingly, with the exclusion criteria, we only really excluded about 8% of patients, which in, at least in theory suggests that about 92% of patients would be suitable or at least could be considered for day case surgery. So there'll be ones that we excluded and there were ones that we excluded that did undergo day case surgery. Um, and there will be certainly be ones that we've included who wouldn't be suitable for day case surgery um, but, you know, for various clinical reasons. But at least this gives you an indication as to how many are being excluded uh, directly. Um, so day case surgery rates... Um, in non-specialist trusts were 62%, um, and in specialist trusts were 50%. So lower rates of day case surgery in specialist trusts, which is to be expected due to the perhaps slightly more complicated case mix and the fact that they're traveling longer distances. And day case surgery rates did increase, so non-specialist trusts over the five-year period increased from 58% to 68%. So it's a steady increase, not too spectacular, but a steady increase. And this is getting towards, by the time you get to... 2018-19, the rates of day case surgery in non-specialist trusts getting towards a target which has been set by the British Association of Day Case Surgery of 70% of all patients seen as day case. Um, in specialist trusts, increased from 48% to 55% over the five years, so a little more modest. Um, so in terms of rates of variation, so our initial growth report had suggested there was huge variation and when we rerun the analysis, uh, more updated analysis. This is what we find. So each dot um, on the scatter plot you can see is a trust, and you can see huge variation in terms of day case rates. So within non-specialist trusts, day case rates varied from 5% to 100%. So some trusts um, doing all of the procedures as day case. And we only included trusts where over 50, over 50 patients during the five-year period were seen for pediatric tonsillectomy. Um, so we included trusts who only saw one, one or two patients. Um, so some trusts doing all of their procedures as day case. Um, in, non, in specialist trusts, a little more narrow, 9 to 88%, but still huge variation in terms of um, day case surgery rates. Um, so we ran a, in order to run the model, we had to model the data. We adjusted for a number of potential covariates, um, for example, age, um, aspects of presentation, um, non-specialist trusts, volume of cases, uh, whether they underwent cobulation surgery, year of surgery, and gender. And what we found is that age was probably the strongest predictor of undergoing day case surgery. Um, so at, at age two, only about 30% of children underwent day case surgery, rising to about close to 70% at age 10, and then falling off slightly towards uh, age 18. Um, but day case surgery was also associated associated perhaps unsurprisingly with a less complicated presentation. So those presented um, 
with a simpler presentation, more likely to undergo day case. Non-specialist trusts, as we've said, higher volume trusts, so trusts that saw more patients tended in general, um, it wasn't a huge effect, but trusts that saw more patients tended to have higher day case rates. Uh, use of copulation surgery, uh, more recent years, have we said, and also in females as well. So in girls, um, rates of day case surgery were higher than in boys. Um, so the first thing we did, so we ran these models, um, adjusting for all these factors and looked at a number of outcomes, um, emergency readmission at 30 days, hemorrhage, infection, pain, nausea and vomiting, or any post-surgical complications at 30 days, and also some at a slightly longer time period, about 90 days, so emergency readmission um, and emergency readmission specifically for ENT surgery. And what we found in non-specialist trusts is there was no real difference. So if we compared those that were seen as a day case and those that had an overnight stay, no real difference in outcomes um, favouring uh, overnight stay. Um, but interestingly, those that had day case had significantly lower rates of haemorrhage, infection, nausea and vomiting and post-procedural complications at 30 days. Um, in specialist trusts, what we did see at 30-day readmission rates were slightly higher um, in those that were seen for day case. Um, an odds ratio of about 1.14. Um, but when we look at this, actually what this means in terms of adjusted rates, um, was about 7.7% readmission rate in those that had an overnight stay and 8 point, about 8.0% 8, 8 uh, readmission in those that had DK. So actually, um, you know, re reasonably similar rates overall. Um, but we're also seeing similar for this more specific um, post-procedural complications. Again, it's a similar story where they, those that were seen as day case actually have slightly improved outcomes um, than those uh, seen for an overnight stay. Um, a couple of sort of caveats with this data. Firstly, from a statistical point of view, we've got 150,000 patients here. And often what you see with these very large databases is things can become statistically significant without really having any great clinical significance. And that's one possible explanation for why we're seeing slightly higher rates of 30-day readmission here. Um, but the second one is that there's a reasonable argument that those seen for day case would be selected by clinicians to have a, a less complicated presentation. So one would expect those seen for day case surgery to have better outcomes. Um, and so that's a sort of caveat with this data. So in order to try and overcome this, what we did was we split trust into those that had very high rates of day case surgery and those over 70%, which is the bad target, and those that had relatively low rates of DK surgery, so less than 50%. So now we're comparing one group of trusts with another group of trusts. And the logic here is that within these groups of trusts, um, day case rates, um, um, the presentation is much more less likely to, to vary systematically. You know, the presentations are likely to be very similar within these groups of trusts, which are spread across geo various geographies geographies. And that's exactly what we see when we repeated this analysis, just on these two groups of trusts being the exposure variable. Sure enough, there's no difference at all in outcomes um, between the two between the two groups. Um, so our conclusions, substantial variation in rates of day case surgery between trusts in England, um, and no strong evidence that day case surgery was unsafe. Um, we felt the trust should review their current guidance when making decisions on suitability for day case surgery and avoid unnecessary referrals into specialist trusts, which would immediately, in a lot of cases, would preclude day case surgery. Um, and we felt that most trusts, even specialist trusts, should be able to meet the BADS target, the British Association of Day Case Surgery target, of 70% of patients seen as day case. And obviously, as we go forward, um, we need to review these targets as well to make sure that in fact, there is, there is no negative impact on patient outcomes. So constantly reviewing this data is another recommendation we made. Okay. Beautiful.
Wonderful. Thank you for that beautiful summary. Now, Ruth, I'm I'm just looking at this this database. You you've gone through 150,000 patients. That just seems like a massive undertaking. And one of the issues we have as clinicians on the ground entering data into electronic medical records is how usable the data is. Um, so you've used hospital episode statistics. Can you give me a sense of how easy it is to work with this database? Um, I'm sure Keith will jump in on this <laughs> as well. Um, the GERFT itself, we cover a lot of specialties. We visit all the trusts and we have one particular mantra, which is coding. And coding of procedures is really, really important. And uh, we see differences in different trusts in how accurate the coding is. Um, and the understanding and fundamentally understanding how important getting coding right is to the information that comes out is something that we have to keep repeating. Um, so we can, um, Keith will talk a bit about in more detail about how we can um, account for differences in coding. But I have to say, it is something from an NHS perspective that if you start with poor data, all we can do is keep reinforcing that you need to get the coding right so that we can obviously pull out the right information. And then Keith, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think one of the big things GERFT has done is really you know, one of the first programs to really try and use this data systematically. You know, it's a huge data resource um, and there's a huge amount of information in there. But one, one thing we lack is, as I sort of hinted at there, is, is lack of clinical detail. You know, we don't really have absolute details on the presentation. We've only got a sense of major diagnoses that might be associated with that admission. So we do have to be really careful. And I think one of the big things, I mean, GERFT's now been running for around about 10 years, uh, and, and we have got gained huge insight into the quality of this data, what you can use it for, but what you also what you can't use it for as well. And I think, you know, the inappropriate use of this sort of data, not fully understanding exactly how it's put together and its limitations, you know, it has the potential to, to lead to sort of misunderstandings. But I do think the GERF programme are probably best placed to you know to understand this data and to interrogate it in an appropriate way. Is there anything that clinicians at the bedside can do to help with coding? Um, Anakin, do you want to come in on that one? So um, the assisting coding is, is clear notes and documentation. Coders will often review clinical notes um, and then pick up procedure codes and also diagnosis codes based on the notes and especially discharge summaries. There's been a lot of initiatives, especially in ENT, with operative notes, for example, to, in addition to putting the name of the procedure, putting the clinical code that's associated with the procedure, so you know that will be coded correctly. Um, and wherever you're putting clinical detail, if you have an ICD-10 code, the diagnosis or an OPCS code for the procedure, that assists. So I know I've worked in several trusts where that's a mandatory field, and especially with electronic patient records, a lot of this is now automated you pick from a select drop-down box. Um, so then that automatically will inform the coders of the correct diagnosis and um, procedure. So Anna, can you say the clinician at the bedside is determining the code rather than getting the coder to go afterwards and try and work out what it is that you meant? Um, correct. So because you're putting clear details of the diagnosis, you may not have there may be other codes that were picked up and also other information in terms of hospital stay and other procedures that were picked up from your clinical documentation. But with the bare nuts and bolts of diagnosis and procedure, that should correlate directly. 
as I said, a lot of electronic patient records do correlate that directly when you input it in your clinical notes. Yeah. That's interesting. So, Can Michael, I, yeah. 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 The, the, the coding for surgical procedures also depends on the surgical procedure. So, for, for example, a tonsillectomy, there are a couple of codes, but it's pretty straightforward. Whereas if you have something like a periprosthetic fracture, there are multiple codes, and it's not coded as well. But for tonsillectomies, I think the HES data is accurate. Yes. But particularly if you exclude low numbers. You know, every so often in the HES data, you find a mental health trust does an operation. But the numbers of that are tiny. So if you exclude cut out at 50, you, you avoid that problem. Okay. Yeah. So, Michael, it really struck me the massive, and I mean, I guess this is the point of the whole program, right? The massive variation in the rates of day surgery. Some yeah. places are just not doing it all, yeah. and some are doing virtually everybody. Yeah. Um, and it's so interesting, isn't it? Whenever you ask a clinician about variation, the first thing they say, no matter if it's an ENT or a bowel or a head and neck or a heart attack or whatever, the first thing they tell you is my patients are special. They are different. They are yeah. more complicated. That's the first thing they say. And they say that um, all through the three countries I've trained in, yeah. every hospital you go to, my patients are more difficult, more special, more everything. Yeah. So I guess in this situation, uh, Michael, why do you th what's driving this huge variation, particularly as it's financially incentivized yeah. to achieve 70%? I mean, what's, what's driving it? If the first thing to say is people aren't different. They're the same. Yes. <laughs> yes, that's correct. We are all, yes. I would totally agree. Having worked in three countries, we are more or less the same. Yeah. The, the second, the GERF program has involved using this data and then clinicians visiting trusts and sharing the data, going through the data with other clinicians. We also collected data on demographics, so age, deprivation, uh, and what we would first do in our visits is demonstrate to people, we know what your population is like. And that then gives your HES data credibility. And then finally, the, the variation for day surgery is not just in tonsillectomies. It's in many procedures. And from the visits, we found sort of three reasons why you didn't do day surgery. The first would be you didn't have a day surgery unit. The second, you didn't have a day surgery pathway, and you do have to do certain things differently to achieve good day surgery. And the third, probably the biggest one, is clinicians who just didn't want to do it. And those could be anaesthetists or they could be surgeons, but they just didn't want to change their practice. And for those, you didn't really get change until they retired. <laughs> <laughs> the old, we've always done it this way. Yeah, we've always done it this way, hey? Um, Anakin, can you say, tell me, what are the key benefits for day case surgery for tonsillectomy? If you were giving your elevator pitch to one of these, I have to wait till you retire, surgeons are anaesthetists. <laughs> and I know it's difficult in a registrar position. You come in, nobody wants to hear anything. Uh, what would you say? Why would you, what would you, how would you pitch it? Well, the first thing, the benefit of working within GERFT is that you have the data to support you with this. Um, so really it's probably the main areas I'd say are one, it's improved patient experience. It's improves the experience for clinicians. And lastly, there's financial savings for the hospital. 
if we look at decades tonsillectomy for pediatric population, keeping a child in hospital overnight is a massive undertaking. I have personal experience from this for my son being admitted a few times. Um, for the patients, if they can be managed at home, it's a much better experience for them. And for tonsillectomy, it's crucial that the children are eating and drinking soon afterwards, getting into routines straight afterwards. That's actually the key to reducing post-operative bleeding and post-operative problems. So if they can be managed at home safely and the parents are educated and the children are educated, that's a better patient experience. It's improved clinician experience because you operate on these patients, you know you've observed them for the ad adequate amount of time, you know they're not in hospital unnecessarily, and then that adds an extra workload to your night team, your on-call staff, unnecessarily often. So that improves the clinician experience. And then for hospitals, there's a financial saving there in terms of reduced bed days, um, allow, uh, there's the financial opportunity for operating other patients to have if those beds are open. There's the, the risk of cancellations often, especially in the winter. If you don't have a post-operative bed um, for a pediatric patient, that operation is cancelled. And if that's the pathway that's established, that means that child does not get that operation in the day. And that's a big problem in winter. So I think for those th three main reasons, patient experience, clinician experience, as well as uh, financial uh, savings for the hospital, that, uh, that's, that's how to pitch it. That's a pretty cool, that's a pretty good pitch, Anakin. I think it would be difficult, it would be difficult to argue that, and and some will, but I think that's a pretty good uh, comprehensive pitch on that. Um, so Ruth, how can we how can we target this from an operational point of view? Do we have to go to individual clinicians? Do we go to trusts? Do we go broader than that? I mean, there are already financial incentives to get to 70%. Do they need to be increased? Is there any evidence of any tools that can be used to shift the rate? So it's interesting because I think, that first of all, we do need to have that dialogue with the trusts and systems, actually, to you know just hold that mirror up to them. So as Mike said, you know, we, we go and talk to organisations, so we need to continue to do that. And we're doing it more on a, a system-wide basis as well, looking at the variation, not just within trust, but across a, a system to ask, well, why is this? And can you work collectively to try and address that? I think from an operational perspective, um, you know, there are fundamentals such as, is there a, a day case dedicated unit? Um, you know, I remember anecdotally when we went to OnTrust we said, your day case rates are far lower than others. Why is that? So, well, we shut our day case at units at six o'clock. Well, that will be why it's lesser. So, you know, operationally, you can give um, additional resources and prioritise day case. And I think the British Association of uh, Day Case Surgery would say you need to be defaulting the pathway to day case first. And I think if I just do a little bit of a kind of shout out for our best practice library, because we developed... Um, kind of a guide to um, day case work. So, you know, if you look on our best practice library, we've got a link to that document, which says here's a guide to how to really get engagement with day case and how to address all those different issues from a trust perspective. Mm -hmm. Now, Michael, do you think this paper should stimulate a randomised control trial? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I, so, say, the people who are about to retire are going to say, well, where's your RCT? I, I don't think you need an RCT to Dad, prove everything. 
Heath is just, you know, fiddled with the statistics. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm in favour of my RCT. I don't disagree. <laughs> I think Keith, Keith and I don't agree, but that's that we like each other, but don't we don't agree. agree. So Michael, your case for no RCT is? The evidence is so clear that there is no harm from it and there is benefit. So I don't think there's equipoise. Okay, and Keith, you have the opposite view. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, don't, I don't disagree um, fully with Michael, but I, I think in RCT, I, I think I take your point, uh, Tanya, that you'll always get someone who will say, oh, yes, but it's observational data, which is which is a valid point. There's all sorts of flaws in an observational study, as and we've tried to overcome as many as we can within the analysis. But I think I think an RCT would be valuable in just providing that final, that final push to those who are a bit more reluctant, give them a little push over the, over the hurdle. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but I, th I, th I think the problem is I think I think Mike's right in a way. I mean, an RCT, you know, if you ask patients, do you know, do you want your child to be day case or overnight stay? It might be difficult. You know, some of them might drop out as soon as they realise which group they're in and things like that. So it would have to be carefully thought through. I think an RCT. But I, I, I just I, I feel it would be beneficial in terms of just giving that final push to some people. Because you know the thing is about the push. So here's the thing about. So the clinicians will say to you, "Well, that's all very well, but." I had this case. Everyone has that case, right? And um, as anaesthetists, surgeons, nurses, parents, children, uh, the, the bleed. You know, pain's a problem, but the bleed. And I know that we, I know that we put structures around to make it safe. We make sure that they've got good discharge information, great social supports, uh, not too far from the hospital. But it's the bleed uh, that really gets hearts racing. And they think, well, I don't care if I have to keep a thousand kids in hospital because that one bleed has taken ten years off my life and just about got their life too. What do we do with that? It, I don't. I don't think. I think the conception that being in hospital makes it safe is is not true. I think being in hospital can be less safe. I, I don't. I don't think you. Know, that I, I, we haven't got the RCT evidence that says hospitals are safer than home. So I, I would counter it that way. And then I'd say this has been developed over the last twenty years in a very controlled way. And there are specific things that are done. Um, you do the cases in the morning. Um, you keep the children in for four hours. You have very good discharge criteria. You have telephone contact. We have an ambulance service that may be struggling at the moment, but, but you know, can get you back to hospital. And we've put distance limits on how far your home can be from the hospital. So I think that makes it as safe or safer than hospitals. If you turn up in hospital as an emergency, you get treated. If you're left on a ward, you may not get spotted. Yeah, yeah, it's very. Um, what do you? What's your? What's your view on that, Anakin? Is the person having to stop the stop the bleeding? The the primary bleed rate is quite low. I haven't got the figures to hand, but your bleed, your secondary bleed rate is the one you really worry about, which occurs between seven and 10 days. And then you've got the window up to 14 days. So that wouldn't be mitigated against by an overnight stay. Mm -hmm. um, and the way to reduce your post, your secondary post onset bleed rate is encouraging the children to eat and drink nearly as soon as possible. So the old, the old style of thinking whereby you get them out of jelly and ice cream and be on soft foods, food for two weeks is now gone you eat you ask them to eat whatever they can and mm -hmm. if 
by being at home, they get into an environment where they're more familiar, that's more likely going to facilitate that. So an overnight stay may not actually potentially reduce that uh, or improve that treatment for bleed rate, except for the primaries that occur in the first 24 hours, of which there's a low number. Hmm. The, um, you know, it was surprising to me that the readmission rate was 8%. Just from, like I, obviously most of that is not going to be anything catastrophically terrible, but how do you think that goes in the, you know, with the pandemic, with bed pressures, with being re readmitted? What is your experience with that? Like, do the children come to ED and stay there a long time? Do they get a bed? Uh, How does that work at the moment? If a patient, I mean, the the mantra really, the patient comes in with post-operative um, readmission or bleed, you observe them for 24 hours as a minimum. Um, and often we don't actually know in individual units our own readmission or post or our own bleed rates. It's only actually using HES data, which is an excellent tool for this, that you get a viewpoint, especially if you work in a hospital that's a specialist hospital. The children won't readmit to the same hospital. They'll go to their local A&E. And &E. I know that's what you're told. Um, so during the pandemic still, we would still admit patients. If they're very low risk, they're coming because of post-operative pain, you can see them in A&E &E and get them eating and drinking. Um, or if you think there is a mild infection that can be managed as an outpatient, then you still do that. It's only really the bleeds that need to be admitted. And by and large, even with the pandemic, you would admit them at that point because they are high risk at that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. It really resonates with me. I work in a regional centre about an hour and a half south of Sydney, and that is across all surgical specialties, a phenomenon that we see here that uh, patients might elect to go elsewhere um, and then return to their residence and, and present to us for their com for their complexity. Um, and it's always it's always a sort of an interesting point when that happens for us here in the regions. I'm sure it happens in the UK as well. Um, Keith, tell me what's your next project? What are you looking at next? You've looked at pediatric tonsillectomy. What's the next thing to look at? What's the where's the next big post pandemic <laughs> money saving quality improvement project going? Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose there's a few. I mean, we've looked at day case surgery for other conditions um, in urology, for example, uh, blood for resection for bladder tumour. We've looked at day case and now we're going to look at other areas. Um, another area is, is GERF's very interested in whether re centralisation, regionalisation of some specialist services. So it's pro probably smaller volume than tonsillectomy, but regional services would, would be beneficial to patients, would improve patient outcomes if you have surgeons who do particularly high high volume work, are they better at those types of procedures than those doing you know, one or two a year, for example, for some of the more specialist surgery. So that's a big area of focus. But I think, I mean, Ruth will probably come in on this as well, but one big area that Gov's interested in is, is getting down this elective backlog that we have now post-COVID um, and focusing on some of the more high volume procedures and just trying to get those through as, as, as safely and as, as quickly as possible. Ruth, do you want to come in on that? Yeah, so definitely, I mean, we've got a huge backlog and waiting list and we've got to focus on that now so um this is a high volume low complexity is the the phrase we're using so we're looking at six specialties which between them probably cover about 40 percent of the activity on that massive waiting list so that's where we're focusing um, we've got 29 pathways we've identified all of them day case actually to try and uh, if we can lift everybody's um throughput in day case up to the the bads standard then that will you know make a huge impact on the waiting list but i think Keith's probably going to be busy because i think what's really helpful is having 
undertaking the research to say that what's the impact you know is it safe to do this and um you know such as this study on tonsillectomy i think we'd want to see more of this kind of research being undertaken to just reinforce that what we're doing is absolutely safe and right for the patient i mean you have to wonder much much like the pandemic has made us um update our it for example here we are across the planet all live, all Zooming, all pretty comfortable with it now. Totally unheard of two years ago, absolutely unheard of. And here we are, routine is anything, no big deal, because the pandemic has, has forced us to work in different ways. You have to wonder from a patient point of view, if you were one of the, is it a million people waiting for an operation in England? If someone said... How many? Yeah. Five. Yeah. Oh, jeez. Okay, I was I was out by a touch. If you're one of the five million people waiting for an operation, and if someone said to you, "You can have your operation, but the catch is you have to go home that day," I think a lot of people would be, you know, safely with all the structures around, um, and we said that you would be okay and safe and less likely to catch the, um, you know, COVID when you're in hospital. You have to wonder if a lot of people wouldn't go for that where perhaps before they sort of wanted would want to sort of uh, recover in hospital for a week and you just have to wonder if this is the moment to push things into day surgery do any of you sort of have any views on that do you think that's is that what what because ultimately we're just serving our community and what what they want of us uh, but with five million lined up what do you think Michael okay, okay. I think pre-covid, if you ask people which they prefer, most people would prefer to be in their own bed. There are some exceptions, but the majority would prefer to be um, day cases. I think we've got to be slightly careful, though, with language. I think it's not pushing people into something. Mm -hmm. It's providing people with choices and information to make those choices. And we do want to move inpatients to day cases and day cases to outpatient procedures but we've got to do that very carefully by giving people information and choice and then also following them up so you know our standard is a telephone call to every patient the next day to do a pain score a nausea and vomiting score a satisfaction score and ask for for, for, for patient feedback mm -hmm. to make sure that we are doing providing a good quality of care and that our pathways will learn if we're not providing a good quality of care. Yes. Now, we yes. don't do that for inpatients. <laughs> no, we don't, do we? The, um, excellent. All right, so I think what, just before we close the session, what I want from each of you is to give us, from your experience, um, a message that you you could give our listeners around the world who are all dealing with COVID and elective surgery in different ways, uh, whether talking about the paediatric day surgery for tonsils or other issues, what's from your experience, what would be your top tip to share uh, with the listeners? So um, Ruth, could we start with you? What would you say, either clinicians or administrators or scientists? What? How can we, what's your top tip? So I think for me, it's nobody comes into work to do a bad job, but we get into habits. And I think sometimes you have to put your head above the parapet and say, actually, when's the last time I examined my um, my procedures, what I do? Am I fully up to date with what's happening? And I think like events like this is really helpful to say, 
yeah, actually, I need to think about what habits I've got into and do I need to refresh my practice? Wonderful. That's a really, that's a beautiful tip for, for all of us, no matter what we do, Ruth. Thank you for that. Anakin, what would you say? What are your top tips to help, to help us all improve? I think in, in regards, especially this topic, but in medicine in general, it's collaborative working and making sure you get buy-in from all the, the stakeholders. So here, it's not just anaesthetists and surgeons, it's pediatric recovery nurses, it's reception staff, it's the whole pathway. Um, and very much from working in trusts that do a lot of pediatric day case surgery, the, pin, the, the key point is the pediatric recovery nurse and their confidence that there's someone there that if there's a problem and they can troubleshoot, there's an ENT surgeon around making sure they're supported in the morning. So I think the key thing here is collaborative working and, and getting buy-in from all the stakeholders to make this work for patients. That's a really beautiful lesson. Thank you, Anakin. Uh, Michael, what, what would be your top tip? I, I agree with Anakin. It's a team sport, and the whole team has to be wanting to do this. But as I say, as, if I was an individual surgeon or anaesthetist who didn't do day case um, procedures like this, uh, go and visit someone who does and spend a day with them and see if it, you know, if you, when you see it works, it's, you feel more comfortable changing. Yes, I think that's a really that's a really great tip. Can put us into a degree of discomfort though, can't it? When we feel that we're experts in something, to go and be vulnerable and be brave and go and visit someone else. So I guess reciprocally, uh, those of us who perhaps have thriving day surgery practices could even extend the hand of friendship and collaboration to others to say, oh, you know, we've been working on this for a couple of years and it seems to be going okay. We'd, we'd, love, to, we'd love to have you. Um, and Keith, give us your top tip. Yeah, it's, it's about, I mean, follow the data is what I would say. As a, as a data analyst. <laughs> so it doesn't lie. Follow yeah. the numbers. Not the how abouts, not the what do you reckons, not the we've always done it this way. Go with the numbers. The numbers don't lie, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you do have to be cautious and we all have to, you know, think about how we interpret numbers and data and things. But yeah, I mean, as Mike said, I mean, one of the barriers to, to DK surgery was people saying, well, we've always done it this way, you know, and uh, yes. perhaps the data suggests you should be doing it a different way. Yes, beautiful. All right, everyone. Well, I'm going to leave that there. Um, just to remind everybody, this paper is out now. I've downloaded it. Um, I always get these. I know it's bad for the environment, but I need to have a copy. And I sit there in theatre with trainees and we go through the data and they teach me things and I teach them things. It's such a wonderful collaborative effort. Uh, 150,000 patients have given us their data and we can learn from, from them. So thank you so much. Um, and we'll leave that there. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Keep well, everybody. Thank Bye. you. The Anesthesia Podcast.